0: We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation.
1: Science, logic, reason. Do you have any
0: hard data? Now, that's what I call science. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathering to record this episode. We recognise the ongoing contributions that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are making to the sciences. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. My name is Neve Chapman, and I'm joined by my co host, Kate Johnson. And we're going to be getting a little bit philosophical today, talking about misinformation as part of our National Science Week content. So, Kate, please tell us a little bit more about what we're going to be talking about today. Sure thing, Neve. So, today we have David
1: with us, he is a philosopher and a senior lecturer in philosophy and gender studies at the University of Tasmania. So David researches topics such as rumors, conspiracy theories and the blogosphere, making his research very very relevant to today's topic of misinformation and conspiracy theories in the digital age. So David, do you think you could tell us a little bit about what you do and what your areas of interest are?
2: Uh yeah, so I'm as uh, to say I'm study philosophy and lecture in philosophy at the University of Tasmania, uh, I range pretty broadly, but increasingly my work is in applied philosophy um, and especially in what I call uh, applied epistemology.
0: So what does that mean to applied philosophy? So what's the difference yes. between pure philosophy and applied philosophy?
2: That's a very good question. Uh for my way of thinking, applied philosophy is uh, philosophy uh, that is relevant to the concerns of non-philosophers uh, and generally accessible to them. The term applied philosophy actually goes back to 1970. There was an article, a uh, very influential article back then of that name, and the idea was that just as we make a distinction between pure and applied mathematics – uh, there's room for a distinction between pure and applied philosophy, where the latter is concerned not with not so much with uh, the kind of eternal truths that people think of philosophy engaging with, but the issues that are of contemporary concern to the population at large, or at least to non-philosophers.
1: Great, so. David, you study this applied philosophy in the context, um, well, you have studied this applied philosophy in the mm-hmm. context of information and misinformation. So, why, why yes. did you decide to study this?
2: When, uh, you know, there's a term in philosophy that's called the applied turn, and a lot of philosophers got into this applied philosophy back in the early 1970s. So probably the best known example outside of philosophy is Peter Singer, the Melbourne philosopher and animal rights activist. And he and, and other applied philosophers at that time, they were, they were all ethicists. They were concerned with questions about right and wrong and so on. I thought the way uh, philosophy could help the public or engage with public debate was uh, at least as much as concerned with issues of knowledge and with rational belief, which is what epistemology is. So... Uh, It seemed to me that uh, the sort of information breakthroughs that came about as a result of the digital age required rethinking the way we uh, engage with issues about what we can know, uh, what we are rational to believe, and these are traditional questions for epistemology.
0: So, David, to kind of play devil's advocate, are what's what we perceive to be right and wrong from an ethical viewpoint not inherently linked with what we know or don't know or are exposed to and therefore our knowledge and belief system?
2: Yes, absolutely. So uh, I think it's fairly striking that uh, the applied certain philosophy, which I'm very much in favour of, I, I think it's appalling for so long. And, and it hasn't always been the case, but in for most of the 20th century philosophers were only talking each other uh, and the applied turn broke that but they were only doing it within ethics and the people who worked in my field in epistemology uh, were still carrying on like uh, questions about what we can know and what we should believe are are eternal questions which will never change Uh, and I thought the technological transformations and various other social changes as well just show that that's, that's not the case. Yeah, there's a sense in which applied epistemology is is more fundamental than applied ethics, uh, or epistemology generally is more fundamental than ethics, because questions about how we should live or what we should do uh, presuppose answers to questions about what we should believe uh, and what we know to be the case.
1: So, thanks for that, David. That's yeah, that's really interesting how you can apply this field of epistemology. And I wonder if you might be able to tell us a little bit more about how you distinguish between justified belief and opinion using this framework?
2: I mean, that's an awfully big question. That's really an uh, a question in, uh, I guess, pure epistemology. Uh, And in the case of climate change, just to take a particular example, uh, which I have written about and spoken about quite a lot, It's a fairly striking fact that the vast majority of people, uh, their opinions about this matter uh, are heavily dependent, not so much on their own observations or their own reasoning, but on what other people, people who they take to be experts, uh, tell them. That raises questions in that particular case about our reliance on expert testimony, on what others tell us, uh, and how we go about adjudicating that issue. Um, I I believe you can rationally believe something indeed that you can know something just on the basis of the testimony of others, that is people telling you that it's the case. A lot of people will deny that incidentally.
0: So do you think that this is kind of the difference between um, one, what we can rationally think and then how our behaviour can differ from that rational knowledge or logic model within our brain? You know, for example almost all adults in the modern world would tell you that smoking is bad for you, but many, many yes. adults smoke. Um, so is that the difference between knowledge, action or behaviour and belief system? Like are there kind of three parts of play here?
2: Um, well, look, I think in the case of smoking, there's, a, there's the issue of addiction, which complicates things uh, enormously. Um, I think... Uh, that it would be absurd, as some people, economists, for instance, many of whom would tell you that the fact that people continue to smoke show that they have made a calculation that their life has a certain value and that the pleasure of smoking has a certain other value and they've weighed these values together and come to some rational choice to keep smoking. I don't think that's how it is at all. But you, know, you could argue there are similar things going on uh, in the case of climate change. I think uh, people could, you know, could be described as being, in a similar way, addicted to consumerism. It's not that they... You know, it, it, there's a similar kind of thing. Uh, uh, there's a higher-level want. They, they want to buy various goods, even though they, they know it's increasing their carbon footprint. But at the same time, they don't want to have that want
1: great that's really interesting thank you David and stay with us for part two as we delve into Mm -hmm. David's research into the climate change debate and into conspiracy theories and how they're perhaps not always as crazy as we might think You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we're talking about misinformation and conspiracy theories in the digital age. My name is Kate Johnson, and I'm joined by Neve Chapman, along with our expert guest, David Cody, from the University of Tasmania. So, as a science based radio show, we're really very interested in David's research around the public debate on climate change and me, personally, as a plant scientist who studies drought, I'm very interested. So, David, mm-hmm. you and your colleagues have investigated both the epistemic and ethical issues mm-hmm. raised by the public debate around this topic. And I wonder yeah. if you might be able to tell us just a little bit more about this research and what those epistemic and ethical issues relating to the climate change debate are.
2: Yeah, look, uh, I think my colleague, uh, Richard Poe and I wrote the book uh, a few years later, which is called the Climate Change Debate. The first half is on the epistemic issues raised by the uh, debate, issues about what we can know, what it's rational to believe. One you know, common response one gets uh, when people hear the title of our book, The Climate Change Debate, a lot of people will say, look, there is no debate. Um, the issue is settled, uh, and if a debate at least means a rational discussion, there's no such Thing going on. I think that's a little bit quick. I mean, I know, if you like, some climate change skeptics, in some, people who are, in some sense, climate change skeptics. And I don't think, you know, they're not like flat earth theorists. Uh, they're not, as it were, denying the evidence with their own eyes necessarily. They tend to just have quite different views from what I and orthodox scientists have. Uh, about who the experts in this issue in this area are
0: So David I think that's a really interesting point that you make that there's lots of varying shades of gray between being an mm. all out climate change denier to maybe being somewhere in between of it being maybe sure. over exaggerated by some people or by the media um, to you know being full right 100% believing in it and that we need urgent and drastic change I wonder yes. how much does that maybe is that influenced by knowledge of the alternative which is what can I do about that to change the proposed trajectory so do I have knowledge of how to live more sustainably or what can be done to combat climate change and how much of a how much power do I have over that
2: Yes absolutely so um I'm in one of the One of the things that uh, I think motivated Richard and myself to write this book was that we believe the orthodox climate science, there really is such a thing as anthropogenic climate change uh, and that uh, the best approach to dealing with it is to mitigate it and the best approach to mitigating uh, the damage is by government action uh, and that the best way to induce Government action is uh, by international agreements, but nonetheless, there's a kind of response that I have long been uncomfortable with. And people point out to me that, as an academic, I'm accustomed to travelling an awful lot. Universities have absolutely enormous carbon footprints. Their staff travel a lot. They they also invest in fossil fuels and so on. That that's fairly token, I think, compared. Uh, to the carbon footprint coming from elsewhere. And there's a line that we, I think professional people generally, but especially academics have, that uh, your own carbon footprint simply doesn't matter. What matters is getting institutional agreement so that uh, there's less emissions overall, well, I should say pure emissions overall. And what I tend to find is that when you talk to people about these issues and they say, well, look at your look at your own carbon footprint and they effectively dismiss you as uh, a hypocrite. And uh, I can't think there was something to that, to that, that line. So it's, uh, to some extent, it's, it's a way of mitigating my own emissions.
0: Yeah, I think that's interesting that... Um that whole, uh, well, I don't know how you would describe it, but uh, typically what you see when people are trying to talk about from maybe an evidence base, and you see this a lot of nutrition, actually, mm. of um, people talking about what the evidence says for nutrition guidelines, for example, And then, mm. but you cannot go the other way or you can't say, you know, based on the evidence, um, I should be completely carbon neutral because I so vehemently believe in um, climate change. You also have doctors yeah. that smoke. Um, or don't meet physical activity guidelines. So I would be of the other stance of like, yes, I can see that you may think that me I'm I'm not a total believer because my actions do not completely and totally reflect my belief system but I can still believe in the knowledge and but also have a complex belief (laughs) model where I don't feel like individual change is part of the solution but it's still part of it we should all be doing a little bit more and I think this is where it becomes really complex on the individual level and probably a really difficult area to research as well.
2: Absolutely and I, I do think incidentally that um I think it's terribly important that if you are trying to persuade people to get on board with climate action, that you don't use terms like denial, actually. Um, I think the term denier or science denier, denialism, uh, is actually a kind of derogatory term that doesn't help and isn't going to actually persuade anyone. Um, It's a term, um, you know, it comes from Freudian. Psychoanalysis. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of a way of pathologizing the views of people we disagree with, and I, I'm not in favor of that.
0: Thanks for that, David. That's a really interesting way to view the varying shades of um, belief models and epistemology and ethics Mm -hmm. and how that informs kind of evidence based decision making. Um, And I also think, you know, just to toy or, or tantalize our listeners, I wonder how much individual belief systems also inform political decision making because our political leaders are essentially individuals too. But that's just to tantalize our listeners to stay tuned for more information in just a moment. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and today we've been talking about belief systems, knowledge, and evidence-based decision-making in the era of misinformation. My name's Neve Chapman. I'm joined by my co-host, Kate Johnson, and our expert guest, Dr. David Cody. So, Kate, we've covered quite a lot of ground already, um, and sure. what are we about to get into for our final segment? All right, so
1: now we want to touch on the um, topic of conspiracy theories, which are quite prevalent in the digital age and um, I guess quite out there, quite easy to see, quite easy to access, from flat earth theory to recent ideas about the Telstra 5G towers. And I wonder if you could tell us, David, from your perspective, what actually is a conspiracy theory?
2: Well, look, I, I don't actually have an answer to that anymore. I used to have an answer, but uh, I've come... This uh, might be a disappointment to you, but I've come to the view that the term conspiracy theory should be uh, not used at all, and uh, that it's, uh, it doesn't... There's no positive uh, function that it serves uh, and, in fact, that it does uh, a certain amount of harm and... Uh, That's a view that I I evolved writing about this topic uh, over the last 20 years or so. And uh, so now I like to say, you know, what I'm writing about when I get onto this topic is not conspiracy theories because I don't know what they are, uh, but instead I'm writing about the term conspiracy theories uh, and the way it operates.
0: So, if I may, David, what has made you come to this conclusion that using the term conspiracy theory could, in, in fact, be quite harmful?
2: Um, Well, because, uh, you know, it's kind of a first point here that it's not as if conspiracies don't happen. Um, People do conspire, uh, and since people conspire, there can't be anything wrong with believing they conspire, so there can't be anything wrong with being a conspiracy theorist. (laughs) That was kind of my first thought, and people have various objections to that. I won't take you through all those objections, but it does seem to me that in the end, what's going on here is that conspiracy theory is just one of those terms which pop up throughout history. Um, I like to compare it to heretic, no heresy. Heresy is like conspiracy theory. Heretic is like conspiracy theorist. Uh, And it's just a way of marginalising views which um, aren't endorsed by whatever institutions have power at the time or place in question. So Heresy used to be used to um, marginalise or delegitimate views which were inconsistent with the views being propounded by the official church at the time. Uh, And these days what conspiracy theory really means is just a view that is not endorsed by the major institutions of our society. So it's, it's it's a modern equivalent of heresy, if you like.
0: Do you think one labeling it a conspiracy theorist and people as uh, heretics or this is heresy actually gives people yep. more strength to? So therefore, if you want to be uh, to go rogue or to be anti <laughs> the system, that actually that actually supports conspiracy theories to gain interest, um, but also. How does this factor into how we determine what we're going to give platforms to? I mean, if we have definitively shown in evidence that something is factually incorrect, like the flat earth theory, yes. should we be, every time we're talking about um, astrophysics, have a flat earth on board so that we're being inclusive of different <laughs> theoretical belief systems?
2: No, absolutely not. I mean, I think uh, there are certain subjects like uh, astrophysics and, and pure mathematics, for instance, and even applied mathematics, in which the institutions which have the most power happen to coincide with the institutions which are epistemically best. That is, they're the, actually the best guides to rational belief and the best sources of knowledge that we can get. And in those kinds of fields, that tends to be unproblematic. Um, I don't think, however, that you know most people, you know, question those kinds of things. I'm certainly not aware of large-scale, uh, you know, anyone denying uh, you know, basic knowledge or information about astronomy, for instance. Um, there may be a few people. I mean, I understand there are flat earthers out there, but I'm not. When I look closer at alleged flat earthers, most of them I don't think are really being serious. There's a certain mindset which just gets terribly worried about the fact that people just believe things that aren't true. I'm, I'm not that mindset. I was one. <laughs> it used to bother me a lot uh, when I found people believe things uh, that, in my opinion, just weren't through. Uh, but now I've gone to uh, relax a little bit about and like, I advocate uh, people being, in general, a bit more relaxed about it.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective, David. Thank you for that. And since our mm. topic today is about the um, spread of information and misinformation in the digital age, I wonder if you mm. might be able to tell us a little bit about what you think makes it difficult to distinguish misinformation from reputable information? Well, it, I mean, it's difficult
2: uh, now because uh, certainly more difficult than when I was younger. But, I mean, I grew up in a era where there was a few few major sources of news. They came from large institutions, uh, three or four, um, you know, news organisations. There was some variation in the information they gave you, uh, but not a huge amount. Uh, and for the most part, those things you know, weren't questioned. Now, of course, publication is as a result of the internet is much more easy. And there's a great deal more information out there and people have to... You know, There's more of a challenge for people. But I don't think that's actually a bad thing. I think it should be a challenge for people to work out what to believe uh and <coughs> it shouldn't be i mean there's an awful lot of people my age in particular who you know think back with fondness to the days of the broadsheet newspaper when everyone knew what to believe everyone thought they knew the basic required facts about politics and so on uh but it's not clear to me that that, that complacent attitude was ever justified uh i think uh, <coughs> You know, it should be a challenge to work out what to believe uh, about politics, especially, Uh, and uh, it shouldn't be easy. Uh, And the fact that there are more sources of information saying contradictory things uh, just means that people have to work harder at it. It means that subjects like critical thinking and so on, which I teach at university, become that much more important. That would not be a bad thing.
1: Considering it is really challenging to distinguish reputable information from what might not be Mm. correct, um, and perhaps Mm. even rightly so, um, do you have any sort of advice for people on how they might be able to um, approach distinguishing rumours and misinformation from this correct information to hopefully prevent the spread of this incorrect information?
2: Um, Look, I I think... uh the the advice I would have I uh, uh, wouldn't go terribly far beyond common sense. Uh, one thing I think is worth you know reflecting on generally is uh, what's the source of the information. Uh, the fact that very often you know I, I'm actually a defender of rumours. <laughs> so I'm a great believer in rumours, uh, incidentally, and I I don't think things should be dismissed simply on the ground that they are rumours. But there's a certain kind of rumour, which is fairly common, which goes under various names. But sometimes it's called an urban legend or an urban myth. And there's a lot of people, including myself, who have historically fallen for a lot of urban legends. And they do have a certain character. Uh, you can. It tends to be someone you know at about two or three steps. Uh, it has a sort of overarching model to the story and you'll find that it pops up if you spend a certain amount of time with it over and over again in slightly different clothes in different areas. So it's always possible to identify these kinds of things if, <laughs> if the story appears, as it were, a bit too good to be true, as if it's got this moral to it and so on, uh, actual you know, real life doesn't doesn't work that way, but I don't think I've got any sort of general <laughs> pill which will uh, cure people of having uh, false beliefs, and I, I don't think if I had such a pill, uh, I'd recommend anyone taking it either.
0: Alrighty. Thank you very much to our expert guest, Dr. David Cody, to my co-host Kate Johnson. Mm-hmm. My name's Neve Chapman and you've been listening to That's What I Call Science. If you've enjoyed today's content, please get in touch with us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Also like and subscribe wherever you're listening to your podcast. We'd really appreciate a review because that helps us take the good word of um, science to more people more broadly um, and engage generally in a good way. So until next time, thank you and goodbye. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science at all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at EDGE Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support Community Radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. Gemmaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialize new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information. The maiden international T20 100
1: and it's a sublime knock from Alisa Healy. Hi, I'm Alisa Healy. You might know that I play for the Australian Women's Cricket Team, but you might not know that I've also studied Marine Biology. While it's exciting to whack on the baggy green and get out on the field, putting on some scuba gear and getting out in the field is just as exciting. This National Science Week, discover just how exciting science can be by getting involved in one of the hundreds of online events at scienceweek.net.au. is Dr. Carl here, and it won't come as any surprise to you that I was a bit of a curious kid. I was always asking my parents questions like, why do people think that the earth is flat, and how can flies walk on the ceiling? Only by asking questions, by being curious. Only that way can we get answers, which then give us knowledge. Find your answers during National Science Week at scienceweek.net.au.